All right, we're going to spend just a moment looking at uh, the second lesson as well from Genesis uh, chapter 3. And as Pastor Mike said, one of the ways you can put the grand story together, literary scholars talk about it in this way. When they talk about the story of Scripture, they talk about it as a comedy or a U-shaped comedy where it starts in one place high in all goodness and creation and paradise. And then there's this sort of free fall. There's this U where it drops down in the middle. And then ultimately, though, it, it, it returns back up to this place of goodness at the end, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, where you return to this idea where God has put all things right again today. But lesson two is in this fallen part. It is in this downward spiral in this Genesis chapter three story that the Bible talks about um, where sin is entering into the world. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. Uh, one of my favorite... Um, Favorite lines in a C.S. Lewis story is when little Lucy, she's one of the characters that's following this lion, this Jesus um, person named Aslan, and she says this to him. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. She sees him after a period of time. She says, you're bigger. And he says, that is because you are older, little one. And she asks, not because you are bigger? And he says, no, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And for me personally, every year I return to the Christmas story, um, the season of Advent, uh, these familiar stories, and maybe they're just as familiar to you as they are to me. Um, my hope and prayer is that in the midst of that, in the midst of the familiarity, actually, that your heart can grow, uh, your vision of God, your understanding of who Jesus is, uh, your experience of his grace can actually go, grow bigger in the same way that uh, Lucy's did uh, this morning. There's three aspects of Genesis chapter 3 that I actually think can help that to happen that I want us to look at very briefly. It's how sin enters into the world, how sin tends to work. You see an insight here, and then ultimately how sin is going to be defeated. What's going to happen with this, uh, this evil? Uh, so one of the ways that uh, we talk about this is the fall. Pastor Mike used that term. That's a term that goes back to City of God and Augustine. It's been around for centuries uh, that's there. It talks about how is it that when you're trying to explain what is wrong with the world, how do you do that? How do you begin to understand that? Where, where is the starting point where something is, is not right? And according to the biblical story that's there, this is, this is distinct from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are actually talking about good, and even as we heard the readers say, very good world that God created that is not corrupted by, is not ruptured by any sort of violence or evil or broken relationship. Right? Death has not entered in any way. There is a good world that exists, and that's important to distinguish that. In the same way, it's important to distinguish God from his creation, that they're not the same, that God actually created the world, and that the world itself and his creation is not evil by itself, but that evil and sin has entered into it. And Genesis 3 gives us that idea or that view into how it has actually um, entered in. And so we see in, very, in the first verse, you see this serpent, this crafty one who has entered in and who's going to begin speaking with these human creatures, these image bearers of God that's there. And you get to the serpent and you begin to think, okay, you know, Mike got the, let's talk about the heavens and the earth and the beauty and the goodness. And I'm talking about death and toil and serpents, right? Um, that's, that's there. So I, I should have flipped uh, lessons with them this morning. But when you talk about the serpent, listen to this explanation, because when you begin to understand evil or you talk about this anyway, it's the character of Satan or the character of the devil or uh, the serpent is one of the most enigmatic characters in the Bible. I mean, it's actually this mystery that shrouds uh, most allusions to what happens here. One writer says this, we catch but only an occasional glimpse of this shadowy opponent. And this should not surprise us as divine revelation in the Bible itself exists to give us a deeper understanding of God. 
It's not designed to promote a knowledge of the enemy beyond what is necessary for comprehending the world in which we live. So consequently, many questions remain unanswered when we try to put and collate the Bible's understanding of the devil or Satan together. But one of the things that you see is that this creature exists and is going to come in and by his intention, he's going to be intending to do something the exact opposite of what it is that God is going to do. So God is going to be saying one thing and then uh, this, this character, this serpent, is going to be saying something that is contrary to that. You know, Jesus actually talks about um, evil or this opponent or, this, or a devil in many of the same ways. When he says that uh, in the same way that the, the good shepherd comes to save, he says there is one that comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. He says, when, I, when I'm going to scatter good news and seeds all over the place, there's actually there's going to be somebody who comes in and tries to pick up those seeds of goodness and life that I have planted and try to destroy uh, what it is that's happening. And so Jesus is warning, warning us against that. He even prays to his heavenly father that says, please protect the followers from this evil one that, has, that is called the prince of uh, this world that's there. And so you see from the very beginning that there's this uh, there's this origin that's worth, worth, worth thinking about um, much more. But this being is a created being. So unlike some explanations for evil in the world, that there are these two great forces, one for good and one for evil, and they both existed for all time, and essentially we're sitting underneath a cosmic battle for one of these is going to win one day, right? Who's it going to be? Is it going to be uh, the hero? Is it going to be the protagonist, the antagonist? Who's going to win the great story? No, this created being... Uh, this serpent is not seen as the creator of the world, but seen as someone who is within the world. And therefore, as a result of that, that God is going to have the last uh, word inside of the story of evil that's there. Uh, another alternative explanation of, uh, of this is that there's actually no evil in the world at all. There is no, there is no something to be tamped out. There, there's, there's no injustice that exists, right? There are people who would say that. Um, and what they would essentially say is that there's nothing wrong with humans. There's simply something wrong with the circumstances in which all of us find ourselves, right? So we need to work on changing those circumstances. If we can get those circumstances right, then guess what? Our hearts will perfectly align with good and all will be well with the world. So what do we do? We have, uh, we have more education to change the circumstances. We uh, allow government to be in charge of everything or we get government out of everything, right? We open the markets to everything or we regulate the markets completely, right? There are, there are people who say, if we can just change the circumstances that are there, then you know what? We will optimize the circumstances and our hearts will be good and we will all do the right thing. And there is no actual evil that's there. But the Bible, although it has a lot to say about these circumstantial things and what we should do about those things, it actually locates the problem not in the circumstances, but in our own hearts. The same is true here of Adam and Eve, that in the very beginning, there's something that's happening inside of their hearts where they're going to choose God's way. They're going to choose their own way instead of choosing God's way. That's the first way that we see things go wrong. And that is the entrance of sin into the world. And then secondly, uh, we see how it is that that actually happens. So it happens in this really clever phrase, right? What does the serpent actually say? He says this, did God really say X, Y, and Z? And he begins from the beginning to plant a seed of question about both the character of God, is God good? And did he really say what it is he said? And so from the beginning, the way sin begins to work itself out is it begins to question the, the true character of who God is and whether or not we should rely on the words that he has given us. These restrictions, these limits that he's placed inside of the world. For Adam and Eve, it's inside the garden. It's a specific tree that's there, right? But for many of us, um, there are other limits or things that are on our life that we know that God has said. And we begin to ask ourselves, eh, 
did God really say that? I mean, isn't it okay that I expense this meal and this trip because, I mean, good grief, the company, Mike doesn't pay me enough anyway, so I'm gonna charge this on the church and no one's really gonna know, right? And I can, in my own mind, begin to justify something that's not true or not right and not good, and I can begin to take a series of actions that leads me into something that, as Genesis 3 shows, guess what? This, these sets of actions are actually ways that lead to, ultimately lead to death. And that is the way of sin that's there, is to question the character of God who he is as a good God, and then question the words that he has given us. And then you'll see this about the character of sin as well. The way it works itself out is that it is not going to accept responsibility for its own actions. What happens as soon as God shows up on the scene when Adam and Eve had done this? What does Eve say? She's like, it's the serpent. He, he made me do it. And he looks at Adam. What does Adam say? It's the woman. She's the one that made me do it. My wife made me do it. And, and you gave me her, by the way, God. Don't forget. And so you see the blame shifting from his wife, and then ultimately he shifts the blame back to God. He says, you gave me her. Like, this is, this is your fault that I'm finding myself in this situation. Because sin, by its nature, tries to deflect responsibility and to blame somebody else for what it does wrong. You'll notice this in your own life. Turn on your social media. You'll see how virtue signaling and blaming others for the problems that are around is the way in which this naturally happens in our lives. It happens in Genesis 3. It happens throughout the story of the scripture that's there. So sin enters this way, begins working itself out this way. But the other thing we see in Genesis 3 is that ultimately sin and evil and death are going to be defeated. That's there. And, and there's two hints that show up in the story that you have to be paying attention to. If, you are, um, if you're thinking about this as a young Jewish um, and a family uh, who would not have uh, an iPhone, right? They're not going to be able to say, hey, Siri, what does Genesis 3, 5, and 6 say? What does verse 15 and 18 say? And there's going to be nothing in their home that's going to repeat that back to them. They're given these stories, and inside of these stories, they can actually capture and remember aspects of the story that are there. It just sticks in their brains in different ways. So we get in Genesis 3, this story that's very easy to remember. And what happens are two things. Is one, when God begins to speak to the serpent, when he says the punishment or the judgment that will come to the serpent, he says that the offspring of this woman is going to come and is going to crush your head one day. There's going to be defeat and death towards you. That's number one. And then number two, in verse 21, you see that God is going to come and on his own initiative, he's going to respond to their rejection of him, their rebellion, and he's going to come to them with these new clothes, these new skins that he's going to give them. So hint number one of how sin is ultimately going to be defeated is that there's this baby that's coming, right? And so if you are the evil one, if you're the opponent of God, every time there's a new child that's born, you're going, is this the one, right? Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. It's like, okay, which one of these is going to come and destroy me? Is Cain going to come? Is Abel going to come? Well, the brothers get into a fight. One kills the other one. You think, okay, they can't, be the, they can't be the heroes of this story, right? That's not there. But maybe it's Abraham, right? Or no, maybe it's going to be Moses. He's going to be the one to come. Or certainly King David. And if not King David, he has this like brilliant, handsome son. And Solomon is going to be the one that's going to set all things right and destroy the enemy ultimately. And so the story of the Bible over and over and over is looking for this hint that we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, of this promised one who's going to come and destroy evil and death ultimately one day. And so that is what's weaving and holding the story together until we get to this small town in Nazareth and this baby that is promised Messiah that's going to come to this young mother, Mary. Secondly, we see that sin and his death will be defeated. We get a hint of how that's going to happen because the way that God begins to respond to their sin is he comes to them with these animal skins. And it doesn't take a ton of imagination for us to realize that animal skins 
in order for that to come and to, for Adam to get a new leather jacket, the way that that happens is that there was an animal that had to be alive that had to be killed. And there had to be blood that was shed in order for the protection and the care of them early on to happen that's there. So you get this hint that somehow something about a sacrifice and blood is going to come and is going to be what it is that God ultimately does to restore his people and to respond to their sin. And we're going to close the service this morning by singing a song that gets at that very idea of how it is that God actually did defeat sin and death. How it is that he showed that there's something greater than simply the judgment, his judgment on our sin, but there is his mercy that meets us in the midst of our sin. And so the song lyrics to the song say something like this, that his mercy is more. His mercy is greater than all of our sins that are there. And one way to think about this is this, as you sing it, is that in the same way that Lucy's heart, she saw Aslan and she thought he was just bigger and bigger and bigger at the beginning. As you sing this and you begin to experience the mercy of God in your own life, that your heart can swell and you can see God as being bigger and bigger and bigger, that his mercy is truly more. And that's our prayer for you this Advent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at the bad news um, and the reality that you don't gloss over of what's true about our own hearts and our need before you, God, we pray that we would experience your mercy once again. Uh, this morning as we enter into this Advent season, we would see your goodness and your promises fulfilled in your son, uh, Jesus, who came as a babe and who gave his life sacrificially so that we might be those who receive mercy in the midst of the judgment that we deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.